You're listening to COSAM Talks, the monthly podcast for Auburn University's College of Sciences and Mathematics. Welcome back to COSAM Talks. This episode will be a little different since I don't actually have any live guests today. Back in May, I was able to take a trip to the Conecuh National Forest in South Alabama with a few people from Auburn specifically from the Alabama Natural Heritage Program, which is a part of the Auburn University Museum of Natural History. We traveled to Conecuh to meet with Sean O'Brien, the CEO of NatureServe. Sean had decided to rent a van and travel across the U.S. on the NatureServe Network Van Tour. This was a way to see the research that is ongoing, as well as a way to connect NatureServe to the people they work with. So before I get too far into our visit, let's listen to Sean talk a little bit about NatureServe and what they do. Everybody's heard of the great extinction of the dinosaurs and other extinctions in history. The thing that a lot of people aren't aware of right now is that we're in the midst of the sixth extinction. So the background rate of extinction throughout history is a certain rate. And what scientists have calculated now is that the extinction rate is somewhere between 100 and a thousand times higher than the background rate due to human activity. So there's this human caused extinction, mass extinction of plants and animals, fungus, all sorts of things. So NatureServe's role is to work with scientists across North America who collect the information about imperiled species using similar or the same methodology and the same standards and share the information with each other so that we can actually determine what are the threatened and endangered species across North America and then take action to try and save them. So we work with natural heritage programs across the United States and what are called conservation data centers in Canada, which are often in um, state agencies, but sometimes they're at universities, sometimes one's at a state library. It just depends on the, on the structure of that state. We work with all of those entities to bring all of the data together so that it can be comparable. So I can take data on um, sundews in Alabama and compare it to the data in North Carolina and they're comparable. Whereas with lots of other kinds of data that organizations collect, um, say homelessness rates or crime rates, the way that people collect it in different parts of the country are so different that you can't necessarily compare them. So one of the things that I think is the most amazing about NatureServe and the network is that our data, some of the most complex data there are, right? It's about ecology, yes. it's about biology and species, are actually comparable. South Carolina, South Dakota, Northwest Territories, all of the data can be compared to one another. And so we're able to take that information, share it with industry, share it with conservation organizations, share it with state, local, and federal government to help make land use decisions that conserve biodiversity. We spent the day traveling to a few different sites within the Conecuh National Forest, looking for various types of wildlife, seeing different methods our researchers use to collect samples, as well as how the park manages the habitat to benefit the wildlife. Among those who came from Auburn were Dr. Jonathan Armbruster, director of the Auburn University Museum of Natural History, which houses the Alabama Natural Heritage Program. We'll now listen to Dr. Armbruster talk a little more about the Natural Heritage Program. Yeah, so I guess one of my hats is as the director of the Alabama Natural Heritage Program, which is under the Museum of Natural History. 
And this was a marriage that occurred uh, six, seven years ago or so. And uh, the heritage program had been at Auburn University, but was kind of orphaned. Uh, didn't, didn't really have a good place within the, the university structure, but it was a natural fit for what we do as a natural history museum. So we're, we're a research museum. So if you go behind the scenes at the Smithsonian, you'd see all these collections. What they show you at the Smithsonian is not the Smithsonian. It's, it's all the stuff behind the scenes. And that's, that's what we are. And so we were already out there. Uh, going out and collecting organisms and studying the biodiversity of the planet. We already database a lot of uh, um, specimens from all of our work, and this was just sort of a natural linkage between the Heritage Program and us, and it allows us to have more of a, a regional research focus. Yeah, it, it all ties back together. So. The Heritage Program sometimes takes specimens and we put them in the museum database and then it's served up by museum servers. Sometimes it goes into the, uh, well, all goes into the biotics um, database as well. And so this is, this is all data about what's out, out there. So as a museum person, I always want the specimen because, uh, you know, I, we, we taxonomists tend, tend to change the names on things quite often. Uh, but second best to that is records from people who are experts in the groups and so people like um, certainly Al and, and Jim on plants and, and uh, amphibians and reptiles they know what they're talking about if they tell me that particular snake occurs in a particular area I think I'm gonna believe them and all that data is incredibly important uh, I can't tell you how much time I spend looking at maps of distributions to kind of understand patterns and figure out where we need to put some work into things. Also on the trip with us was Jim Godwin, the aquatic zoologist with the Alabama Natural Heritage Program. Many of the species that Jim focuses on reside in the Conecuh National Forest, such as the gopher tortoise, eastern indigo snake, and the gopher frog. As we visited the different locations in the forest, Jim was there to tell us about the locations, what research efforts were currently underway, as well as attempting to find some of the wildlife he discussed. Let's take a moment to listen to Jim talk more about the forest and some of the current ongoing research. So the dominant forest where we are in Conecuh historically was the longleaf pine and ecosystem. And, and so we had uh, a distribution of mature trees that were widely spaced that allowed the sunlight to hit the forest floor and so on the forest floor there would have been you know, a rich carpet of grasses and forbs and to maintain that uh, there would have been regular fires that, that would have been set by lightning mm -hmm. and uh, there would you know we wouldn't have we don't have we would not have had the roads at the time which serve which are barriers to fire Airbrakes, and yeah. fire breaks and you know and other things like that uh, roads and you know now towns and cities and uh, agriculture so fires could probably move miles once they were started and you know and, and within the the longleaf ecosystem there there'd be periodic fires every maybe every couple of years or so uh, and, and that would maintain the openness of the forest and so we have animals that have adapted to that we have the gopher tortoise which digs these long burrows as a refuge 
the gopher tortoise requires the herbaceous vegetation. It's a, it's a herbivorous turtle, and so it feeds upon the grasses and forbs uh, that would be promoted by regular burning. Yeah. And then having a refuge, when a fire would pass through an area, the tortoise could go underground and it wouldn't be harmed. Uh, you know, the same with a, with a gopher frog. Uh, the gopher frog needs a clear forest floor to move from the ponds, or I mean from the forest where it lives most of the year to the ponds during the breeding season. Uh, and then we have the indigo snake that utilizes the gopher tortoise burrows during the winter. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we have eastern diamondback rattlesnakes that, that will occupy gopher tortoise burrows. Uh, and then there's a whole host of invertebrates that use these burrows. So there's a yeah, a little microcosm that forms up around the gopher tortoise burrows. Right. And, you know, there's been a push uh, the last number of years with tortoise relocations, uh, not so much in Alabama, but in other states, Florida, you know, where there is development going in and, and so tortoises are being moved. Uh, in Alabama, it's, it's, it has taken place. Mm -hmm. uh, and they've developed, there is a mitigation bank in western Alabama. Well. So we're moving tortoises around to save the tortoise, but you know we're ignoring that ecosystem that's associated with the right. tortoise. Along with everyone who traveled from Auburn, we were joined by a couple guys from the Forest Service who were able to show us some of the ways they manage the land in the Conecuh National Forest that are beneficial to the wildlife. From prescribed burns to scoping gopher tortoise burrows, the Forest Service has many tools available to assist them with land management. Derek Colbert, a wildlife biologist with the Forest Service, told us a little about one of the areas we visited, as well as some of the land management tactics they use. Today we, um, we got to stop by one of our most unique spots here on the Kaneka, Nelly Pond. And that's a hot spot for a lot of these kind of endemic species that we've been talking about. So, gopher tortoise, gopher frog, even the indigo snake, which um, we're, we're working to reintroduce here on the Kaneka. We've been working for about 15 years to reintroduce that snake to the Kaneka. Um, Nelly Pond's really unique because it's one of those ephemeral ponds that dries down every two to three, maybe five years at most. Um, and that makes it of use to the gopher frog. Gopher frogs need those ephemeral ponds that don't have a fish component. Um, Otherwise, those fish will just consume their egg masses that, that they lay in the pond and they won't be able to reproduce successfully. That spot's also great for gopher frogs because there's a high abundance of gopher tortoises on that site. It's a nice sand hill location, nice deep sands and tortoises. Um, it's got everything a gopher tortoise needs. And so we went out there today, found a couple of burrows and actually went through the process of scoping one of those burrows to see if we could see a tortoise down in the burrow. And that's not something we at the Forest Service here do a lot of, but we do have that equipment so that when we get into project areas that maybe we're trying to transition back to longleaf pine, maybe they got away from us over the years and became more of a hardwood stand. It's not uncommon to go in, cut out all that hardwood component, and before we start prepping the site for planting of longleaf pine, come to the realization that, hey, there's still a population of gopher tortoises that's been persisting in this habitat, even though it's been less than ideal for uh, 10, 20 years now. 
And before we decide what method we want to use to prep that site, we'll check those burrows to see if we have a tortoise down in there, um, just to make sure they're active or if, if they've been abandoned because it's just been too long. And um, if we do find that there are tortoises on that site, that kind of guides um, the type of site prep that we'll do before we plant at that location. Go for frogs, as we mentioned earlier, when they're not in the pond for two to three months breeding in the wintertime, they're spending the rest of their time up in the uplands down in those burrows. Unfortunately, we weren't able to see one today, but we have um, documented them using those, those scopes before down in the burrows. And not just burrows, other refugia as well. We talked about what, that while we were out there. They'll use old stump holes, mammal holes, any sort of cavity that they can find um, kind of at ground level can be suitable as a refugia for, for gopher frogs. And then of course the indigo snakes, are, they're uh, much the same. They're using all of those areas at the same time uh, the gopher frogs are as well. And we talked a little bit about uh, Fish and Wildlife Service and potentially listing species. Gopher tortoise is one of those species they're looking at. So in the next year, we expect the Fish and Wildlife Service to make a, a determination on the gopher tortoise as to whether or not it's become, going to become listed. And then a lot of these other species we've been talking about and, even uh, eastern diamondbacks, we didn't get, in, get into them much today. But they're all due to be looked at by the Fish and Wildlife Service in the next five to ten years and are very closely tied to tortoises, particularly here on the Kaneka. So as the tortoise goes, those other species we can anticipate are going to go as well, more than likely. And so it'll be very interesting to see if they determine that uh, the tortoise needs to become a listed species in the next year. Al Schatz, the botanist with the Alabama Natural Heritage Program, was able to point out various plants at many of the sites we visited. We were able to see a few different carnivorous plants, as well as lots and lots of poison ivy. The last location we were able to visit was the bog, where he pointed out many of the carnivorous plants that live in the Kaneka National Forest. The benefits of the recent prescribed burn were evident as these plants were beginning to flourish in the area. Let's listen to Al talk a little about these plants within the forest. Today, during our trip in Kaneka National Forest, we were we were we had we were privileged to see uh, some carnivorous plants, and one of those plants is known as the white top pitcher plant. And this plant, it's a species that we monitor at the at the Alabama Natural Heritage Program. It's a species of conservation concern, and the species it's rare because the habitat is rare. Uh, you know, when, and when, when the, and in the longleaf system that we have here in Kaneka and elsewhere in South Alabama, uh, many of the species in the longleaf system are rare because, well, the habitat hasn't been maintained. It's a, it's, it's, it's a fire forest. It, it requires fire to, per, to perpetuate its, uh, to the animals and plants that call the, that call the longleaf forest home. And so, Without the fire, the this, this species begin to disappear, and so and that goes for the pitcher plant. And the pitcher plants, they're they're specific to sites that have low nutrient availability, and so they all all the carnivorous plants, they grow in soils that have low nitrogen and low phosphorus, and they supplement their diet by capturing insects. And sometimes you can almost hear them eat. There's so many of them. <laughs> so and 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 what we saw today we saw four groups of carnivorous plants we saw the pitcher plants 
uh, that have the pitfall method. And we saw the sundews that use the flypaper method for capturing insects. And then we saw the bladderwort at, that use, they have traps under the water or under the soil that also has like a suction. It's, it's, a, it's the trap door method that, that when an insect triggers a hair that's near the trap door, the trap door opens and sucks in the insect and closes behind it. It's, it's not a very pleasant scene for the insect. Uh, then then we, have, we also have the butterworth that we saw a little bit today. And so we do have the four groups of carnivorous plants, including the pitcher plant here on Koneka National Forest. Being able to keep ecosystems like the one in the Koneka National Forest managed so that they remain beneficial to the local wildlife relies on the data that is collected from the research efforts of people like Jim and Al. That's where Katie Lawson and NatureServe come into the picture. Katie is the database manager and GIS analyst for the Alabama Natural Heritage Program, and as such, she works closely with NatureServe's Biotics database. Let's hear Katie talk about managing this database for Alabama, as well as the importance of data in general. I am the database manager for our Natural Heritage Program, and I'm also a GIS analyst as well, so I kind of wear both of those hats. Um, so. I manage biotics. Um, I get a lot of data from Al and Jim and other people as well who submit data to us. Um, lately, I've been doing a lot of GIS work with species distribution modeling or habitat suitability modeling in support of um, Al and Jim's projects as well. Biotics is a relational database that NatureServe um, basically administers um, and supports. And we you know, have our state um, biotics database. And so, that houses all of our natural heritage program data and it's really robust in that you know a lot of databases might just be observational um, where you just have you know this species is found here by this person but you know the great thing about biotics is that we have all kinds of data about um, you know the habitat that it's found in rankings so you know we can tell like how good of a population it is um, and we can track species over time using the way that biotics is set up you know and track how um, frequently it's it's been found at specific locations um, and know which populations have been extirpated if that happens so data is inherent in everything that a scientist does you know if you have no data then you have pretty much nothing <laughs> you know you tell somebody what you did and it's like okay well if you didn't write it down record it you know and preserve it then you know I can't really believe, you know, just your word necessarily, you know, and so, you know, that's the great thing about this database, you know, and the Natural Heritage Network is that we have, you know, data um, going back, you know, centuries in, in some cases. We have some records, you know, as far back as the 1800s and, you know, that's not something that other groups have. And, you know, another thing that I love about the Natural Heritage Network and, you know, Natural Heritage data is that I feel like it's kind of undervalued you know it's we all realize you know how important that is and I feel like you know having that resource is you know more important now than ever. To close out this episode I want to take a moment to thank everyone involved in the trip to the Koneka National Forest and for allowing me to tag along and not only capture some great video and photos but just for the experience. 
I hope this episode of COSAM Talks has helped to shed a light on the important work that is being done in the Connecticut National Forest. And thank you all for listening. Thank you.